Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Robin D'Angelo is a lecturer on issues of racial and social justice, and she's also the best-selling author of White Fragility. Her most recent book, Nice Racism, picks up where white fragility left off. In it, she makes the argument that well-meaning white progressives can cause the most daily racial harm to Black and Indigenous people of color. She explains how white progressives perceive themselves as being well past racism and why people of color find it difficult to have conversations about race and racism with them. Today, Robin and I talk about how individualism upholds white supremacy and the difference between being nice and being kind. We talk about how shame keeps people from engaging in honest conversations about race. We talk about how shame and guilt keeps people from engaging in honest conversations about race. As Robin reminds us, anti-racist work is lifelong, but no one is above or beyond the work. It's by pushing through the discomfort that we continue to grow. Okay, let's hear it from Robin. I have to tell you, Robin, okay, so... I think you do a really depthful inquiry of the problem of this idea of collectiveness or the collective versus individualism. And I'm really curious how you how you see the idea of individualism being a problem within white supremacy in terms of it helping to sustain white supremacy. Well, I use an image in my book of a, of a dock or a pier, because that, that is literally the image that came to my mind as I listened to the kinds of things so many white people say. It's almost like a script. It's so predictable what we're going to say. And yet so superficial and so surface, like the top of that dock or pier. And so it got me thinking, well, what's underneath that? What, what is the foundation of understanding that would lead us to say those things? Right. For example, well, I'm not racist. I had a black roommate in New York. Right. So I therefore I can't be racist. Okay, so that must mean that a racist couldn't have proximity to black people. And that's a really strong thread. I'm sure you've heard coming from white people. The evidence is almost always based in some form of proximity. So that must mean, again, under that dock is this idea of what it means to be racist and it's unexamined. So let, let me let me pull that up to the surface and make that visible. So if you picture the props that hold that dock up, you don't see them, they're under the water. One of the foundational ones is individualism. 
This idea that we're each separate and unique and special, and you can't know anything about me if you don't know me. You can't say anything about me. You can't generalize about me. And, you know, on some level, of course, we are all unique and special individuals. But the very fact that that's an important narrative to us is because we were raised in a culture that taught us that that's an important narrative. Right. So we're also members of a collective. We're swimming in the same water, getting the same messages. And it's a lot like gender. You can you can have a baby and say, I'm not telling anybody the sex of the baby as written on the birth certificate. I'm going to dress that baby in yellow and green. I'm going to do everything I can to resist. And you will have to do everything you can to resist because you cannot avoid the gender socialization. And, and you will upset your friends and family. They will be unnerved by, the, by not knowing the gender of that baby, right? It, it's just not avoidable. So in other words, how you respond to it may be uh, nuanced and varied, but you have to respond to it. And I think we understand that with gender, but for some reason, we just, when it comes to race, nope, you don't know me, you don't know nothing about me. I've been untouched by all those messages. You know, even as I live a segregated life, like most white people, even as I was never taught <laughs> anything about systemic racism in school, I'm just, you know, untouched by the messages of white superiority. So, you know, Let's move on. So individualism in, in general may be great, but as applied to racism is a key way that it's protected. And speaking about protection, talk to me a little bit about this idea of niceness, <laughs> of, nice, <laughs> of nice racism, because when you were speaking a moment ago, I think where I found myself really pausing and, and really reflecting more deeply is this is in this idea of proximity, one, how proximity minimizes the potential of racism, which is untrue. Mm -hmm. And then this kind of secondary component of, I never learned about systemic racism in school, you know, and how just those two pieces alone create a sense of complicitness. (laughs) When complicitness is innate, how does niceness somehow bypass that complicit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we did learn it. I mean, we did learn systemic racism, but not explicitly. And that obliviousness is not benign and it's not innocent. It is a requirement to hold this in place and to keep us complicit. And I, I don't know if you've noticed, you know, white culture likes to project irrationality onto you. (laughs) You're irrational, you're over-emotional. And yet I think white people are the most irrational on this topic. We are the most invested in the status quo. And so we get deeply unsettled when that is questioned. And so there's a kind of irrational stew inside of us, right? So on the one hand, white people are really rather meticulously taught not to see racism, not to talk about it, not to acknowledge it, not to cause any other white person discomfort around it. That would be white solidarity. And so when we say, gosh, I just didn't know, you know, on some level, it's true. We really are oblivious. But on another level, oh, hell yes, we know. We know. Oh, yes, we do. Kind of a wink and a nudge, right? But we can never admit that we know because our identities are so deeply grounded in this idea of being not racist. So when you put that together, both not knowing and knowing (laughs) and the kind of craziness of that, both those things being true, you get you get the kind of irrationality that you see. So I just want to be really clear. Obliviousness is not benign. It is part of what racism looks like. And and I was thinking, boy, Erica, you'd be the one to answer. um, How does niceness function from white people in the face of racism? I'm going to imagine that our obliviousness is not experienced as benign to you. Yeah, I I, I completely agree with that. And I think something that's interesting about my lived experience, you know, I, I, I grew up in South Africa for a good chunk of my life shortly after apartheid ended and the racism there, obviously systemic, but it was so much more palpable given how long apartheid stayed in state active, you know, in, in the country. And there was this feeling of, if I'm nice, 
I, I can't be racist. And if I'm kind to you, especially like what I experienced as well, being kind of one of the first black students at an all girls kind of Anglican school there, it was a very, a very kind of painful and bizarre experience where I was so deeply othered, but because of the congeniality of kind of Eurocentric culture, there was this like this overt niceness and effort, effortful niceness like given to me, but I, I never felt safe. It always felt, there was always a, a subversive or dark quality to it that especially in my teen years was hard to really identify. You kind of just operate over that. But in reflection, people were nice, but I, I didn't feel safe. Well, and that's part of why I focus on white progressives, not because, you know, white nationalism being on the rise is not terrifying and, and serious and important. And I like to say I'm not a white nationalist. And so my racism doesn't look like that, but it looks like something. And you just articulated like that inability to get your hands on it makes it more more insidious, makes it more agonizing, more maddening, makes it harder to protect yourself, you know, a culture of niceness. And and first, I just have to say, from whose perspective, you know, I mean, from, you know, white people's perspective, it's a nice culture, may not be experienced that way by other people. But that's a that's a conflict avoidant culture. That's a keep me comfortable, keep things on the surface. Mm -hmm. If there is discomfort, and you cannot address racism without discomfort, then there's been some kind of breach in the social contract. And now you are an aggressor and I am a victim, right? I was magnanimous to include you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've been nice to you. I want you to validate me as not racist. And if you're not doing that, then you're not nice. Right. So, yeah, a culture of niceness is also this idea that that signifies an absence of racism. And I would just say it's it's like a, a blanket holding racism in place. Yeah, just a different form. <laughs> Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code Inner Circle to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Well, it's interesting thinking about this idea that you brought up a moment ago around the obliviousness and thinking about some of the affinity group work that you mentioned in the book and the kind of existential panic that would come up when you would group people by their race. So, you know, all the white people would be together, you know, all the BIPOC people might be together. Maybe there's a splice within that BIPOC kind of grouping, but that exposure of white people's own whiteness is, is where this panic kind of stems from. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I can remember actually the the moment where I had a little bit of that existential panic and I had read Peggy McIntosh's, you know, famous article. It was back in the 90s. I can tell you where I was sitting when I read it because I, I, j- I had an out-of-body experience. That's what it felt like. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, I am white and everyone can see it. I didn't want to go outside. I felt so loudly white. And and it's very, it throws you off your psychic equilibrium, right? And so I talk about white fragility as one of the ways we regain that equilibrium by, by grabbing back, you know, the narrative about what's going to be said and what's going to happen here. 
I think for me, when I was reading that, I was just, I was, I was taken by this idea because I had, as a black gay woman, first generation Nigerian American as well, meaning even my experience of blackness has layers, you know, black people are not a monolith. You know, I've spent a lot of time in Nigeria. I lived in Africa for a long time and I'm here. So there, there is gradation to how I've, how I've experienced being black in this country. And I wake up to that all the time as well, just having to really be in that differential and making sure that I'm centering my own experience, but also being open to the, to the, to the lack of ubiquity actually within my own experience, given where I've lived and how I've experienced things. But then when I would, when I read that, you know, white people were kind of like panicked about being white as a black person, I have to spend a lot of my time exiting my experience and entering a white experience in order for me to even be on this podcast with you right now, doing this job, I have had to do a lot of my own minimization and just walk the bridge over into the white experience to be able to kind of barter, you know, my way into a place of security, be that fiscal or otherwise. But I had not, until reading that in the book, thought about white people waking up to their own whiteness. It's just, it's one of those deeply, like you've just described, psychic splitting moments where it's like, oh, oh, you you have to think about that. To me, it's it seems like a space of potential behavior change, but also like a place where you can also retreat from the intensity of the awareness of your own whiteness. What is your suggestion about that? Like, what do you do when you have that moment where you realize your own whiteness and you're wanting to, to activate around that or pull away from it? Maybe it helps if we, if we break it down more, what, what is it that's causing that panic? Right. So again, if we get under the dock, we're more likely to be able to address it. So I I would ask myself, what does it challenge in in me to see myself as white? Well, it challenges individualism. It challenges meritocracy. It challenges objectivity. It challenges universalism, this idea that we can speak for just humanity because we're just humans. It, It challenges all of the supports that hold white supremacy in place and my position within that. And then it makes me then responsible and accountable for for my position within this. And I haven't had to build my stamina to endure any of that. And then you throw in, and I also feel entitled not to have to endure any of that. So, you know, it's, again, I keep uh, the phrase that keeps coming to me is this irrational stew kind of boiling around inside of us. And the existential panic is also coming from living in segregation, but pretending that's just a fluke is how we get away with a lot of what we get away with. It's how we ensure that our children will have a superior education and yours will have an inferior one. And and that mine can't have a superior one, unless yours have an inferior one. What I have depends on your oppression to be really blunt about it. Right. So if it's just a fluke, if I just happen to grow up in an all white neighborhood environment, go to school, then, you know, it's really not my fault and there's nothing going on there. But as soon as you say, we're going to separate by race one, we're going to do it explicitly and we're going to do it to challenge racism. But that, that just like cuts at the at the root of so much of what holds all this in place. So going back to this idea of something being a fluke, oftentimes white progressives will downplay their advantages. Right. Just like you said, I, you know, I just happened to grow up in an all white neighborhood and they might say I'm white, but I'm also a woman. And there's all these gender oppressive frameworks that I'm having to live inside of, or I grew up poor or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, just to get to baseline, how does that not excuse their behavior? How does that not cancel out the effects of racism? Yeah. I mean, I often ask white people to just remove a few phrases from their vocabulary. And one of them is just happened to be 
doesn't really have anything to do with this just because of the color of my skin. No, it's not just because, right? It, it's actually my psychosocial development was inculcated in the water of white supremacy. So it, it is part of my personality. It's part of my worldview. It's inside the skin too. You know, I was born into it. Right. It doesn't mean, you know, you're born racist, but you're born into racism. And in fact, based on my uh, racial identity, we could literally predict whether my mother and I were going to survive my birth. So the forces of racism are operating even before we're born. Right. So what I would say to any white person who who's sitting there with all the exceptions they're thinking of for themselves. Great. Take that thing that you think exempts you from what we're talking about and ask yourself, how does being white shape how I experience X, Y, or Z? How might I experience X, Y, or Z differently if I was not white? That just seems so clear and obvious to me. I grew up in poverty. And so I always say, oh, send those white people who want to say that they have no privilege because, you know, they grew up poor or working class. And, and I just say, look me in the eyes and tell me to be poor and white and to be poor and black is the same experience. Come on. It is not. Right. Even miners. Right. You got the lowest of the lowest job. Well, who, who got the lowest jobs in the mines? <laughs> Black miners, right? Anything that you want to you want to come up with, being white shapes it. And so then then the next question, and this for me is the big one, is to change it from if you've been shaped by the forces of racism to how have you been shaped? You have been shaped. So that's on you. That's where you get to be a unique, special individual. How are you in all of the intersections and complexities of your story? How was all of that shaped by your whiteness? And so then how does that manifest in your life, your work, your relationships? You know, it's a lifelong journey. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What you just shared really takes me back to the seminal concept of white fragility, because I think what you just did there, changing it from if to the how, getting people to actually compartmentalize the kind of extent of how racism has shaped their lives. It immediately brought up for me, which is actually kind of interesting (laughs) as, as I'm experiencing it, this sense of like, oh, but that's a lot. How do you, how do you start to pull that apart? How do you start to, to not feel so overwhelmed by the depth and the vastness of the potential impact or not even potential, the impact of racism on your lived experience? Where do you start? Because I think for most people that I have known and have experienced within my own life, the idea is it's such a, it's too much. I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to begin. And then when they do want to begin, it begins with, I will be nicer to the black people or the BIPOC people in my life. And it kind of creates a circle that really, I feel like you're encapsulating in the title. The fact that, you know, people don't have the resilience to go in and, and, and pull the pieces apart and really look at themselves and said, and then instead of doing that, they're just like, I'm going to be nice. And the niceness, hopefully, over time, will somehow, you know, mitigate or soften the racist experience of of of, of my life, or the or the racist, you know, confines that I live inside of. 
Yeah, and I feel the um, need right here to say, the point isn't not to be nice. (laughs) 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 You know, boy, I wish social media was a lot nicer. But the point is that niceness is not an indicator of the absence of racism and that niceness actually, like a culture of niceness kind of prevents us addressing it. So yes, it is a painful journey. It is overwhelming at times journey. And it is also the most profoundly growth enhancing emotionally, psychically, spiritually on every level. I don't think there could be a journey to be on that is more rich with growth. You know, a lot of people, white people in this work like to center, you know, well, let's talk about what you've lost as a white person by racism and, you know, okay, that that's a strategy. It's an approach that worked for some people. For me, it's so much harder to look at what I've gained, what my investments are, you know, the seductive power of whiteness. So that for me, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the hardest thing and I'm going to put it in the middle, but look what you get from it. One guilt becomes moot, right? We can just be done with that. I did not choose to be set up into this system. We're going to have relationships we never had before. We're going to have repair skills we did not have before. There's so much to it that is exhilarating, to be honest, that is, that is fascinating, that, that engenders curiosity and hopefully also at the same time, humility, right? And there's a slippery slope. And this is where the Audre Lorde's powerful quote on the master's tools come in. Because even in that journey, let's face it, it can be very narcissistic. It's like, oh, how interesting I am, how interesting whiteness is. I just want to talk about whiteness with white people. I mean, and this is not to discourage you, but uh, or discourage listeners, but these are the tensions. This is why we can never be complacent. This is why I don't call myself an anti-racist. That's for you, Erica, to decide if in any given moment, am I behaving in what you would call anti-racist ways? It's a constant process and struggle. It is a constant process and struggle. And I think your acknowledgement And I remember hearing this in a conversation that you and Resma had. Resma Manekum, for those who uh, might not be familiar, also very much in this space, moving from a more of a somatic framework around just how white supremacy impacts our experiences. But this idea of you making it clear that it's up to me as a Black-bodied person to decide what is anti-racist, I think is a really important thing to just hold some space around because I feel as you share, most white people live in segregated environments. They're more than likely going to be having conversations about racism with other white people. And again, maybe you've taken an eight week anti-racism course, or you've read five books and, you know, you've had a couple book clubs and you've talked to all of your, you know, white counterparts about you know, the issue of white supremacy and how you are going to work towards shifting it. But that doesn't make you not racist. And I think just you bringing forward that piece of it is really for Black bodies or as Resma says, bodies of culture to decide, I think is is another interesting tension because I think one of the kind of mainstays of whiteness is, is perfection, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is achievement. And so the idea is like, oh, I did all these things and I've talked to all these people. And so now I would like to comfortably sit inside of this bubble of, I am not racist. And, and that, and that's, that is not going to be true. And it, and it actually shouldn't be the goal. And so I think I, I appreciate you just bringing that into the conversation of just like, it's up to me to decide. And I, I, what I would want to turn back to you is to say, knowing that, that that evaluation process is not something that can come from white people to other white people, beyond this idea of this kind of catalytic growth that you described and, and the deep kind of expansion and curiosity that comes from doing this, this work on oneself if they are white-bodied, what are the other what are the other benefits at, that come from this work if you're not going to get to check a box and pass a test? Why is this worthwhile work? Because yeah. you, could, you could just sit comfortably in your whiteness. The, the world is still very set up for you. 
Well, and that's that's part of the seduction of it. And this is why we can't be complacent. So first of all, it's not going to end in my lifetime. I just don't believe that it will. And every moment that I push away on it, I have pushed against it for 25 years. And every moment I push against it, it's coming right back at me 24, 7, 365. And so that's why, you know, it just, we can't assume that we've arrived and it's done. It's like getting in shape. You, you have to maintain it and it's a multi uh, part process. But this is where I'm going to draw again from uh, my understanding of patriarchy, because of course, as a girl, I mean, I knew very early that the world was not a fair place for girls. And I've thought long and deep about it. Of course, I was in my thirties before I ever thought long and deep about how it was a more fair place for me as a white girl. But nonetheless, I'm sure you've seen men with T-shirts on that say feminist or this is what a feminist looks like. And, you know, I have two thoughts. And one is, woo. I mean, that's a pretty brave T-shirt for that dude to be wearing. Second thought. Yeah, I'll be the judge of that. Yeah. And most often I don't experience this guy as a feminist. Right. So I would ask you, Erica, how many white people do you know who call themselves anti-racist? even who know, you know, and love who never have perpetrated racism towards you. None, none. Right. Because, you know, it, it's, it's similar. I, I'm married to a man and he's, you know, he loves me. He's got fond regard for me. The moment he developed that love, he was not instantly freed of his conditioning under patriarchy. And, and of course, it manifests in our relationships. So you, you just have to think about it like that, that, it, that it's an ongoing process. But I can say as a result of this work that I do less harm. And that is not small. That might be one more hour on your life that you didn't have to take my nonsense home, agonize all night about whether, is it worth it? Is it worth it? You know, should I, did it really happen? Can can she hear it? You know, all of that stuff that leads to, uh, stress-related disease, which Black folks die of more, you know, earlier and the weathering and all of that. So less harm is not small. And, and when I do cause harm, I, I'm not defensive anymore. And I have really good repair skills. And that is what has built trust. My, the, the people of color in my life don't say, I expect you never to be racist. And if the moment I see that you, you are, I'm abandoning you right? What they say is we'd really be isolated if that's what we did. Uh, We're not looking for that. But what we are looking for is where we can go with you in those moments. And if we can't go there, we we are not going to trust you. You're going to think we're close. We're not going to be close. Does that, does that resonate? That really resonates. And I think what I'm even tapping, you know, further into is just, you know, in the last couple of years, where we have expanded the lexicon for how we talk about race, which I think is probably a whole nother long conversation because language is so powerful. And I think as much as there is a lot of discomfort in these conversations, I'm really grateful for the language now being there for all of us to really continue to engage. And I think something that's been really supportive and freeing for me, especially in the last year since the murder of George Floyd and just the the reckoning that happened for a big swath of of the country and the world in a lot of ways is being able to insert myself as a black body into a conversation. I, I really don't think up until 2020 that I really had the kind of inner energy to just always say as a black person, as a black woman living in this body, because oftentimes I'm speaking to a lot of white people. Mm -hmm. And because of my proximity to whiteness, since I was a child, there can be this feeling of like, Oh, Erica, like sounds sort of white and acts this way or does this or that or the other thing. And it can be very easy to forget my blackness. And so I really feel like I have to bring it forward and center it as much as possible because when you forget that I'm black, even for a moment, it allows you to treat me in a way that does not support my upward mobility, that does not support my safety. And it is easier to, it is easier to lean into my proximity to 
whiteness, then it is easier to actually lean into my, into my blackness and into my, into my, into the depth of my black experience. Cause my proximity to whiteness is minimal, but my depth of blackness is, 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 is astronomical. It's huge. It's, it's, it's the whole of who I am. And so, you know, that I feel like I'm, I'm trying to articulate that to the best of my ability, but it's like, I haven't actually had this exact conversation where I've just been able to name Mm. my, my elasticity around centering myself and how the, the past kind of 18 months have created more space for that. Yeah, I see it everywhere. Definitely has created more space and, and more more space to also to express rage and anger and hurt. And so for, for white listeners, we're going to have to just not take it personal. It's about us and it's not about us. And we're going to we're going to be on the receiving end of some strong emotions that have been suppressed, forced to be suppressed for a long time. What you said reminded me of a quote from a black woman named Pat Parker, which I love. She says, on the one hand, forget that I'm black. And what I think she means by that is stop reducing me to that. Stop having that be the only thing I can ever speak to. Stop having me, you know, be biased around that. And second of all, don't you ever forget that I'm black. (laughs) And I have a different experience than you do Mm -hmm. and a different reality. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's that tension. And that's hard for us as white people. We don't want to hold that tension. We're not used to the work of it. How many times have you heard a white person say something to the effect of, oh, does that mean I have to watch everything I say? Well, yeah, actually. Does that mean I have to, you know, focus and learn how to pronounce your name? Yeah. Yeah. Slight inconvenience. And so I, I was just thinking when you were talking, like, what does it mean to not forget? What does it mean for me as a white person to not forget that you're black? Well, that means I have to also not forget that I'm white. That means I have to hold, right, that I'm your friend. I'm Robin. We're having a conversation, but I'm also your white friend, Robin. We bring the history of our groups into this conversation. It's a history of harm. Regardless of how I see myself, I represent a history of harm. And so, yeah, I have to earn and show I have to earn your trust and show that you can trust me. I I don't walk into that and just demand that you trust me, right? Like, well, you don't know me. You don't know how I'm different from other white people. Ironically, like the very claim of that tells you that I'm not. So there's a lot, not forgetting that you're black means we have to pay attention. Now, Now, this is where I think the distinction between carefulness and thoughtfulness is really important because carefulness is I'm not going to be real with you. I'm not going to take any risks. I'm not going to dare to do anything that could be a mistake, which, which also means I will not grow or change or learn. Hmm. Right. So we have to take risks and be willing to make mistakes or whatever. And even sometimes I want to put air quotes around mistakes because it feels like a soft way of saying run our racism. But nonetheless, thoughtfulness is I, I can engage in, in the conversation with some kind of framing that opens up space. So here'd be an example. I have, uh, you know, please let me know if, if I'm missing something here. But what I th- hear you saying is, or, you know, please let me know if I'm off but I'm not understanding this part, Mm. right? Now, what I've done there is I've entered with some humility. I've given you an entry point. I just made it so that you don't have to argue or debate me. You don't have to confront me or challenge me in order to challenge what I said, right? I've given you that room because you could say, well, actually you are missing a piece. It's this, that's so inviting. And that's really different than me just saying that can't be because of this, right? To make a claim, a definitive claim from my position is not a thoughtful engagement. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. 
If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What I loved about what you did there, again, I'm really obsessed with syntax. I'm like, why this word with this word and this word to get this outcome, you know? And I think this idea of saying, okay, I might be wrong, but I might've you know, confused this. It's basically just casting off perfectionism right mm-hmm. at the top. Because I think, again, if we both are in alignment that perfectionism is a part of whiteness, then starting off with saying I might be wrong is, is, a, is a really... St- potential panacea. It's not going to fix everything, but it definitely creates a different cadence of conversation than we normally have. It's so rare. We want to start a conversation where you say I might be wrong because no one, even this idea of the shame, which is something we also wanted to touch on too, to be like, I might be wrong is really saying, Oh, I, I'm going to create a little bit of proximity to shame. I'm going to get a little comfortable with the fact that I don't have it all together. And, and I, I, I'd love for you to just maybe speak to that for a moment, because I think shame is such a big part of this and what you just kind of laid up is, is a way to combat that. Yeah. I mean, it's a stance that doesn't forget my whiteness, right? Just what we were talking about earlier. And it's, it's a stance, a way of entering the conversation in recognition that I necessarily have limited understanding, necessarily. I necessarily cannot see everything and that my opinions may not be that valid, (laughs) that informed. You know, I mean, I do say something kind of, let's see, sassy sometimes when I'm in front of a group, which is just, well, what qualifies you to disagree? There are certainly people who are qualified to disagree I don't think you're one of them, right? What is your background? What is your record on racial justice activism, right? As you, you know, insist that the answer to racism is X, Y, or Z, right? As you go forth and lecture people of color uh, on their own reality, right? So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a place of recognizing that. You know, there, when I'm doing a presentation with a group, I walk white folks through a series of reflection questions. And what they're designed to do is one, get get us to see how early this conditioning starts, right? Research shows that by age three to four, you and I both knew it's better to be white. We both knew it. Uh, The impact of knowing that was very different for us. You probably knew it more explicitly than I knew it, but no one misses that message. Right. So we know really early on, but we are not in any way taught explicitly. You know, the questions I'll have white people reflect on is, you know, did you study systemic racism in your K through 12 education? I mean, you know, they didn't. And I say I'm not talking Rosa Parks, Ruby Bridges and Martin Luther King in February. I'm talking systemic racism. Did you study it? Nope. Did you study it in college? Nope. Did did you have to demonstrate you had an awareness of it, a basic foundational awareness before you could be certified as highly educated? Nope. Did your white professors have to show that they had a foundation before they were considered qualified to teach? No. Did, you know, I just go on. And then, and then, you know, how, so how secure can you be in this idea that you are completely free of all racial bias, that your opinions are equal to anyone, and that you know all you need to know. Why is it essential for white people to do the work themselves and not always rely on black people or other POC folks to teach them about racism? How can white people do that work without creating more of a burden for folks like me? These are all of course, really, really challenging questions. This is kind of the the struggle of the work. There are, well, let me be clear that I don't believe white people can ever understand racism or whiteness if we're not listening and learning from black people and other 
people of color. Uh, from a very early age, you had to know my reality. You had to navigate my reality in a way that I could be seen as qualified to do or lead virtually anything with no understanding of yours. And to be honest, no interest in understanding yours, right? And so we, we have to learn from, and we can't only, right? We also need that insider's piece. But as far as turning to Black people to teach, there are plenty of Black people who are happy to teach and they get paid to do it. <laughs> they write books and they do seminars and workshops. They coach. They have chosen to do that. But just to go up to anyone and automatically interrogate or expect that incredible emotional psychic labor from them when you give nothing in return is not appropriate, right? And, and how often do we do that? I'm just going to sit back. You go ahead and just break your chest open, right? Just, just show me all your tenderest hurts and your most vulnerable parts. And, and, and I will just sit back and receive them. And let's be honest, decide what of what you showed me I think is legitimate and what I don't. That's colonialism, right? That's me getting the fruits of your labor with giving nothing in return. So we, we can't just demand that or expect that. That, that is a incredible gift. And it's, it's a deep moment of trust. And there are plenty of folks who uh, choose not to do that. You know, they don't want to do that. Wow. You had asked me about shame and guilt. We didn't go there. But that's a good one. I would love to go into that for a moment. So I have a chapter in my new book on the matter of guilt. I actually, I don't think it's particularly a legitimate concern. Now, it's one of the number one critiques I get, particularly from those on the right, is that I trade in guilt and I just want white people to feel guilty. And I'm thinking, wow, you don't know me because I think there are people who think I'm mean because I just don't have any patience for it. It's, it's contributes nothing. It's self-indulgent. You know, it's, it's not useful. Imagine, here we this where I can draw from being a woman. Imagine going to a group of men who control your workplace and trying to talk to them about the sexism you're experiencing in the workplace. And they just wring their hands and say, oh, this makes me feel so bad. You know, I would have no patience for that, right? So I, I feel like that's what we're doing around guilt. When you change your framework, when you understand systemic racism as a system, guilt just becomes moot. So some some feelings of guilt are natural. That's a natural response to coming to terms with this reality that you have benefited from somebody else's oppression, but you, you have to use it to either act. I was raised Catholic, so guilt actually does work for me. It does not immobilize me. <laughs> it gets me to act, maybe not in the healthiest uh, of ways, but, or you have to move through it, but it cannot be your excuse. It, it, it just, I mean, May I ask you, Erica, if you were saying, hey, Robin, you said you're an ally. You didn't speak up in that meeting. You know, you, you, you came up to me afterwards and told me you saw what happened in that meeting, but you did nothing to challenge it. And I just say, oh, God, oh I feel so bad. I feel so bad. I'm so sorry. I, uh, this is just so it's so hard and I feel bad and I don't want them to feel bad. I mean, how would that land on you? Well, if I were experiencing what you just described, I've, I'd feel really hurt and I'd also would retreat. I think that is really the response, especially in like a professional setting. I would just take note and I would really make sure to probably take some space from that person. I think that is definitely the permission I've given myself in terms of preserving my own energy and preventing more exhaustion is I'll just take some space and that's what's going to feel best for me. But it, it would feel, it would, be, it would feel painful. Yeah. You know, in my, in my workshops, I often ask people, okay, on a daily basis, how often do you feel racial guilt or shame? I do make a distinction between those two, but for purposes of our conversation, let's just kind of put them together. H how often do you actually feel that? The percentages are extremely low. So I'm going to give you my zero, five percent, two percent, usually only when confronted with racial inequality, which is very rare and easily avoided for white people, right? So I give the example in the book, I'm on my way into Whole Foods and I see lying on the sidewalk, a man of color who looks homeless. And for those two minutes that I have to 
come towards him on the sidewalk, I'm going to feel some anxiety. I might even feel some shame about my class position in that uh, relationship. When I finally pass him, I'll um, smile so he knows I'm not racist. But I won't hold his eyes too long in case he asks something of me. And then the moment I get into Whole Foods, I mean, have you had their chocolate chip cookie dough? It's amazing. So the moment I get into Whole Foods, I have forgotten all about it. And I'm just in fantasy land over there. So, so let's also get real about how big a hurdle is that guilt? And what is, what is the uh, antidote to guilt? Well, reparative action <laughs> or, or change how you understand what's happening. I think that's a really powerful place to actually bring our conversation to a close and to a pause in the sense of you always have the opportunity to opt out. And that really can be the baseline of your experience. But if you choose to dig in deeper and be in this place of humility and being in this place of, of curiosity you have this opportunity to be in this lifelong learning and lifelong reparative process that I think you and I both have an understanding of the fact that it can be a very powerful and worthwhile experience. I think it's incomparable. And and I would recommend Heather McGee's new book, The Sum of Us, because that book is all on what all of us lose. I mean, I do believe we'd have universal health care. I believe we'd have, you know, universal education so much that would benefit all of us if white people were not so easily manipulated by racial animus. And until we address what we've internalized, we will be manipulated. So it's it's liberating. It's transformative. It, it, you know, you just like you're done with all the deflecting and the denying and the defensiveness and, and you're just getting down to aligning what you profess you believe in with the actual practice of your life. So highly recommend it. <laughs> I'm definitely going to check that book out, but I'm so grateful for your time and mm. just your work. I mean, it is an honor to talk to you. Thanks Robin. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Robin D'Angelo. Be sure to pick up a copy of her new book, nice racism. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.